Welcome to Santa Barbara Talks with Josh Molina. Today I'm here with Brian Curnell, Mr. Santa Barbara. How are you today, Brian? I'm doing well, Josh. Thank you. Thank you for taking some time to talk. I want to dive right in and just sort of talk to you about what's going on downtown. There's this project that you are the architect for involving 84 units of housing in the downtown area. If this gets built, this is going to be historic for the downtown area. Can you talk to me a little bit about what this project is and what it would mean for Santa Barbara? Sure. This is the old um, Staples site. So we actually in the 90s did the Staples building and then did a little building on the corner of Anacapa and Gutierrez, which was a boater's world at the time. It's Reed's Furniture now and a parking lot in the middle. And the project was developed by uh, Tom Williams Jr., who was the son of Tom Williams Chevrolet Cadillac Oldsmobile, which was in that location forever back in the 40s and 50s. Um, and so Peter Lewis, who is my client, um, is someone I've worked with since the 80s. We've done a number of projects for him. And um, he uh, pursued the property with Tom Williams. And a lot of people have been looking at this property to develop. We've actually done studies for others. Um, and interestingly, all of them wanted to look at tearing the Staples building down and, and using the entire property. Peter came in and looked at it and said, you know, you can't afford to tear the buildings down. There's too much value there. So what we have to do is put the housing in the middle where the parking lot is, which makes sense. That's something that we architects have been talking about since we did our charrette in 2017, that we need to be building over these open parking lots. So that's what it is. It's the idea is a very simple extrusion, kind of all of the libero building, which is the four-story building across the street from the Libero Theater. Um, just a very simple, rational housing solution that puts as many units on that site as possible, pursuant to the current rules, and uh, takes advantage of, you know, frankly, what I think is the right time right now to be uh, getting more housing uh, planned for our downtown. You know, I was really struck by the project because it was 84 units. It's on the parking lot. I think parts of it is going to reach about 52 feet in height. And that would be very different for, for downtown. I think the planning commission would have to make sort of a acceptance of it to reach that high. What is Santa Barbara? Why does Santa Barbara need this kind of project downtown? What are the needs of this community? I think Santa Barbara de desperately needs housing in our downtown. Our downtown is is changing. Our downtown has changed. It's going to continue to change. And it's not a place where we can build parking lots and hope to draw retail customers in from around. That's not what is the, the world we live in anymore. So we need... We need people living downtown to activate our, this, this community. And the double whammy there is that we desperately need housing. We're way behind in housing. And, you know, I realize that uh, so many people are were in, this, in this fight about, uh, you know, it has to be affordable. And I agree, we've got to have affordable housing. We've got to have housing that people can, can, uh, can manage. Um, but at the same time, we have such a... A, a drought in housing that you know everybody's jacking the prices up and ultimately inventory will make a difference so a project like this it's going to be new construction it's going to be hard to make it affordable although 10% of the units do have to be affordable 
But the more of these that we can get built, ultimately it's going to bring the cost of housing down. What's going to be sort of the challenge from your perspective in trying to overcome some of those skeptics who might be thinking that, oh, it's too tall, it's too big? Yeah, and it's really height that's the, the fundamental issue. And it's, it's so ironic to me that, you know, we kind of had this fight over height just 10 or 12 years ago with Measure B. And there were the, you know, the, the usual folks who really just didn't want change to occur. They want Santa Barbara to stay the way it is. And, and that's understandable. I mean, you go to any community anywhere and the people who have been there forever don't like the change. The reality though is change is inevitable, right? So we need to direct the change rather than simply go through the change. And height is something that I think people heretofore have been terrified of, but ultimately, you know, the buildings that we love, the Arlington, you know, the courthouse, these are all tall buildings. And so I think as more get built and as we begin to realize that maybe there's some things that are more important than just having this be a two-story fishing village, you know, um, that it's going to be okay. And, and, and part of this is education. Part of this to me is, is folks like the AIA explaining, understanding what buildings are in terms of size and bulk and scale and make make sure that our buildings are beautiful such that they work, that they're not eyesores. And, you know, it's funny, uh, projects that, like, that were built on Chapala um, a couple of years ago or three years ago that caused great uproar. In fact, it sort of spurned the Measure B movement, which was to limit height to 40 feet in our downtown instead of the allowed 60 feet. Those buildings now, today, they've settled in. You know, it's change that's the problem. It's not, it's not really height. So Measure B was defeated by the people of Santa Barbara, which is significant. People didn't want that kind of limitation. And 60 feet ultimately is, is actually pretty modest when it's all said and done. So there's no reason why we can't create a more compact and dense downtown. You know, it's, it's time to do that. And by the way, it's the most sustainable thing that we can do as a community. If we have people living close in in the downtown, then we're going to be driving a lot less. Ah, now that's then the, the classic COVID link, right? Okay, well, are, can we actually afford to live close in like that now? Is that going to be a problem? Are urban centers going to be a problem? Uh, Short term, but no, not long term. We've got to live in a more compact way. Yeah, even before COVID-19 and the shelter in place, Santa Barbara was talking about moving housing downtown. It's been going on for a long time. The businesses have been struggling. There's been lots of talk about how to revitalize. Everybody has different ideas to deal with the vacant storefronts. And then we have the COVID-19 pandemic. How is this impacting your world as an architect? What are you seeing how is this changing sort of the housing industry? Just recently wrote a little piece in The Independent, and I was talking about how there's an opportunity here that we have to realize. And, and you know, for us, for architects, first, it's, it's amazing to me how well we are, have adapted uh, as a profession. Um, we, when, when we got the governor's orders, we were immediately remote. We had prepared for it and everybody had their own computers and were set up and we made sure everybody had their connections and boom, we were able to go remote. And although I think there's some inherent inefficiencies in, in that and 
employees who have kids, it's hard, you know, the kids who are in school particularly. I'm, it's easy for me because I'm an empty nester, but um, th- I have been amazed. We could not have done this three years ago. So we're very lucky. At the same time, a bunch of projects immediately stopped. Boom. You know, clients called us and said, stop work. And that's the fear uh, out there. I think uh, someone like Peter is a courageous person to be pursuing um, his project. But at the same time, it is the time to be pursuing projects. I, in that article, I wrote that, you know, we're sort of the architects are sort of the canary in the coal mine, have, always have been in terms of the economy. If we're not drawing buildings, then there aren't going to be buildings being built in a year from now or two years from now. So um, it is my hope that people are, remain optimistic and see the opportunities in this time to actually move forward with the approvals for projects. And I think some people are betting on the fact that the construction costs that have been escalating for a long time are going to cool down and create more, a more competitive and cost-effective environment. Uh, the real question is going to be the availability of money. Money is likely to remain cheap, but is it going to be available? That's the question. That's what, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll tell the tale. We walk up and down State Street, everything is closed. There's not a lot of people. What is your take on what everybody's dealing with? Well, I, you know, it's funny. I, I really actually see it as a, as a, potentially good thing, you know, in the same way that the depression led to a, a liberal awakening in our, in, our, in our country that led to all these programs and things that became really, really important. The civil rights movement, you know, and the, the, the turmoil of the, of the 60s led to the civil rights movement and, the, and, and a lot of, you know, Medicare and, and things that were important. So I think that we are on the cusp of really potentially achieving great things. Did I ever think this would happen? You know, I, I didn't. And yet I have to say I am continually touched by how obvious it was that this kind of a thing could happen. We've, we've talked about the, the, the existential risks of, of viruses getting out of labs or you know some horrible thing escaping and, and it is an existential threat. And you know the, the fact that we weren't prepared just saddens me so because it, we, it should have been so easy to be prepared to not only have tests in place but also to say, you know what, we are going to have to lock down and here's what we're going to have to do economically to deal with it and these are the steps and to, to really have a plan. I'll bet you anything, Josh, there was a plan out there somewhere that somebody just threw away, you know. But no, it's, I think it's, I'm, I'm actually, as long as we can survive it, I'm optimistic about the potential coming out of it. Yeah, we've read those stories about how certain political leaders have known of the threat and ignored it. So we know that's a big, big deal. Bill Gates did his TED talk in, what was it, 2015 or something about this very thing. Yeah. You know, I think I've been interviewing you for 20 years since I first started the news press. Uh, Talk to me about, you know, uh, your time in Santa Barbara and sort of the projects that you've been involved with that you've designed that people might be familiar with with just driving around downtown, some of the, some of the notable stuff wow. I worked on. 
Well, I, I have been very, very lucky. And, and probably people don't realize, you know, a lot of our buildings. The most obvious, perhaps, is buildings like the Canary uh, Hotel. We did, um, we did the um, uh, Braille Institute. We oh. were the uh, exterior architects for the Cottage Hospital rebuild. We did their parking structures, and we did their child care center. Um, we did the, the redo of St. Francis Hospital into cottage workforce housing, which was significant. Um, we did Maravilla out in Goleta, which is a you know, very important retirement center. Um, and you know, a lot, of, a lot of cool little projects. We did the Honor Bar out in Coast Village Road, which was a great little project. We've done a lot of mixed use projects, most recently across the street from the Paradise. Oh. That's a 32 unit project uh, on the corner of Anacapa and Ortega. So, done a lot of lot of work over. It's been thirty going on thirty seven years. How did you get started in architecture? <laughs> what, well, you get the great story. <laughs> the great story is how I ended up in Santa Barbara. You know, I grew up in Camarillo, and my father was actually an, was an attorney and represented Don Adolfo Camarillo, one of the last California Dons. And we would always come up to the Fiesta Parade to watch the Camarillo horses. He would kind of do that in respect for for. Don Adolfo Camarillo. And we'd always stop near the intersection of the freeway and State Street, right there around like the Fish Enterprise. And that's where we'd watch the parade and they would right. stop the parade. I mean, they'd stop the freeway for the parade and they rerouted the freeway, oh, which is just amazing to think. And, you know, Santa Barbara was always pretty, you know, it was too expensive and it was exclusive and never thought I would end up here. Went to school at... Uh, in San Luis Obispo at Cal Poly. So I was always driving through Santa Barbara. You know, there was a great woman who used to greet people. She had a wonderful large hat. People, whoever listens to this might remember her, but she would pass out pamphlets to the people who would be hitchhiking there along where the lights were because that was a favorite hitchhiking spot. But anyway, um, I actually was in San Luis Obispo. My sister uh, wanted me to meet this girl. She lived in Newport Beach, and so we agreed, the girl and I agreed to rendezvous on this blind date in Santa Barbara. So I came down here, and it was truly a blind date because she didn't show up. <laughs> but So I'm sitting in the courtyard of the San Marcos building, which was the restaurant was 1129 State Street, and Mark Kirkhart, who was an architect in town, had just started his firm here and comes walking through, and I had known him from school. And two weeks later, I was down here working in Santa Barbara. So a girl I never met changed my life. <laughs> <laughs> so about three years later, I went on on my own, just literally put a drafting board in my dining room on East Figueroa and started working. And one thing led to another, led to another. What's, what's the best part about being an architect in Santa Barbara? Oh my gosh. Um, I mean, the best part about being an architect is to see what you do manifest itself into a, the built environment, and it's it's probably going to be there, you know, after you die. So it's an it's a very important responsibility. And in Santa Barbara, you know, I've got to say that the good thing here is that the you know you, this is maybe seems ironic that I will say this, but the demand for good development demands good design and good architecture and so I don't I don't have to fight clients as much to get things to be built well as I might in other places so 
Santa Barbara has a reputation. Some people sort of say that parts of Santa Barbara look sort of Disney-fied. You know, it sort of uh, all looks the same in terms of the red tile roofs or the stucco, um, you know, the, the paint. You know, some people sort of say that Santa Barbara over time has tried to look too much like this time of the past, this historical sort of city. What's your take on that? Well, I, I do often joke that they want me to make it look like it was done by a dead architect. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you know, we did, we did choose this period of time, this style, this Spanish colonial revival that really was invented by Southern California architects in the 20s after they went and visited Spain and did all kinds of sketches and then interpreted it. So it was actually, you know, it's kind of a brief period of, of time that we're copying. And, and there is a piece of that that is, for a lot of people, constraining. You know, architects, by their nature and by their training, I think, embrace contemporary ideas. And, and, and really, the cutting-edge architecture out there in the world today, the, the, the star architects, you know, Tom Mann and Maine and, and uh, you know, Rem Coolhouse and, and Frank Gehry and, and the like, I mean, they're doing... It, the highest, in my opinion, the highest art. It's incredible stuff that's being done. And, and Santa Barbara is therefore, yes, it is constraining, particularly the El Pueblo Viejo, um, which has very specific guidelines. And it says every building erected you know, hereafter shall, shall be compatible with the Spanish colonial revival or the, or the Monterey revival or the California, whatever, whatever is three styles. The key is that it does say compatible with. It doesn't say it shall emulate. The way it's been interpreted is to emulate and to copy. And sometimes it's easy to just pick a really sweet little detail and reuse it. And so you do see a lot of that. Gosh, I'm guilty of it, you know, without question. But I think it is the um, homogeneity of it that is appealing to people. There is, and, and back to that issue of quality, there's a quality to it. You know, you go to a shopping center in Southern California that was made Spanish and there's nothing authentic about it and it just feels yucky. You know, the plaster is rough and it's cheap detail and there's nothing authentic about it. Here, there's a, there's a connection to the past that I think makes people feel really good. And so I think that's the appeal of it. And in, 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 it is for me then also the satisfaction then of doing that well. How can I do that well? How can I do that uh, that reflects m my design um, um, you know, propensities and advances it? That said, We've got a lot of work to do to take this notion of style and evolve it. I've often said I don't want, I want my grandchildren to know when that building was built. You know, I, you shouldn't have to guess whether it was built in 1920 or 2020. So that's a little bit of the problem is marking time with our architecture. Uh, we could put dates on the buildings, that would help. <laughs> but. But we've got work to do, and I think we can take this style and evolve it to where the quality and the integrity remains, but it does speak to its period. As a reporter, can't tell you how many times I've covered a presentation of a project, and the council or the planning commission 
say no or do this instead or come back with this or try this and I can imagine as a reporter that that must be extraordinarily frustrating for an architectural and development team because they've been through so many other meetings where they were told the opposite or they were told this is good this is great and uh, by the time it gets to the very end maybe somebody wants to send it back and a lot of times you hear the council members on an appeal say well, I don't want to design the project from up here and then go into, you know, what, how they think it should be designed. What is the moment like when, when you know that you're about to get pushed back on a design and they're going to say that it needs to be more of this and less of that? And how do you, how do you handle that? Do you, is it just part of doing business in Santa Barbara? And have there been any times when you just walked out of City Hall or the Gebhardt room just furious with what they just told you? Oh goodness gracious! Yes, you know many times, but you know at the same time, what I'm what I'm struck with here is that the process it is it is a delicate dance, and and you never want to create a situation where you're too far into something and you get that kind of an answer or you get that kind of reply. You've got to very carefully, you know, review things conceptually, get buy-in, know where your issues are, and and be prepared to, to adapt to that. Um, the, the ones that really hurt are when somebody's invested just way too much money, and they fell in love with something, and they have to change it, and that's always really, really hard. So you never want to get to that point. When you're in the process, you've got to be nimble and and... There's a lot of things you have to do. First, you got to make sure you understand the basic context and the expectations. I mean, you just can't go off the rails with something. Um, and, and sometimes a lot of that is timing. You know, Peter's project that we've talked about is, is a, a function of timing. Four years ago, probably dead on arrival. Is there ever, so, a, is there ever an attitude of, I'm going to go in and design this massive thing? knowing that there's going to be pushback and we'll get to what we really want. Is that an architectural development mindset? I think it's a development mindset. I advise my clients to not play that game uh, because it's, you know, first of all, it makes me very uncomfortable. My job is to understand what's approvable. And, and if somebody asks me to do something that really I just know is not approvable and the only reason we're doing it is because they want to, they, they know that we're going to end up where I think we're going to, going to be in the only way to do that is because there's always a pound of flesh to be taken. I, I don't buy it. I just don't buy it. You've, If you come in with the right project and you have good sound reasoning for it, then you, you, know, you stay the course on that and you don't give up. That being said, sure, there are people who do like to take their pound of flesh. They want to get their, you know, whatever it is out of it, or they feel that there's some community benefit that ought to be exacted out of a project. And that's sometimes that's okay. Sometimes it's not. You just, you know, you fight those battles. You fight them, you know, with integrity and positively. You don't get, you know, snarky. But... You know, it, it happens. It's a, like I said, it's a dance. It's a dance. I'm going to ask you a question and let you think about it. I'm going to lead into it. And I'm hoping you can give as honest of an answer as you can. And I'll, I'll sort of help you get there. <laughs> um, district elections on the city council. I covered it before. One of the things I really miss about the council members before district elections was that 
you had a certain sort of quality of candidate who was elected citywide and had kind of this broad citywide base of knowledge, regardless of where they lean politically, left or right, or you know, whether they were moderate. You know, I miss those old days on the council when you had these people who could remember stuff that happened five, ten years ago or read the reports beforehand. And by the time they got into the meeting, they weren't asking questions that everybody sort of knew the answer to. The, you know, when you had like Brian Barnwell, even like Bendy White on the council, or planning commission, sort of the, the Bill Mayhans of the world. These people who could remember things before what happened yesterday. And as a journalist, I love those people because they explain it for me, right? They explain it in a way where I can understand it. And then I can deliver that to the readers. And so everybody's smarter and everybody's more educated. With district elections, you know, we have a great crop of people who are coming in, but they're getting elected from their, their districts. And so there's a different kind of candidate now who's, who's, who's on the council. And I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts on district elections as it relates to sort of the direction of the city and whether it's good to have people who are elected citywide versus somebody who maybe predominantly is just focused on something on the west side or something. Um, do you have any thoughts on that in the context of your world and development and architecture? Uh, uh, first, I agree with you completely. I think that we've lost something. That said, at the same time, I think um, somebody like Oscar Gutierrez has been a great addition to the council, and I think he's learning a lot and becoming a, a voice, and that's you know a great thing. Um, somehow, there needs to be the understanding that although you are elected by a district within the community, you do have a community-wide responsibility, you know, that it, it, it just can't be exclusive and, and only about your district. Otherwise, you know, we won't get the big things done that need to be done. Uh, you know, the, the reason we have parking lots in the downtown is probably because we didn't have district elections and we had a courageous council who, you know, created a redevelopment agency for the purpose of creating that downtown parking. Now, it's interesting that at that time it was for retail growth and and prosperity and it may well be the thing that saves us relative to housing. Those parking resources will be there for the housing rather than the retail, you know. So those visionary things are important you know, that those are legacy projects that matter and we can't afford to lose that. So I don't know, do the do they have to take a, some kind of an oath to the you know, the city as well as their district or um, we'll see. We'll see. I mean so far, so far we've you know, Mike Jordan was elected out of a out of a district he, and he, I, he broke the, the curse. He kinda did. <laughs> And he's, mean, and he's, we used to have lots of planning commissioners. Yeah. That was the route. And then we had a little yeah. break there where some tried and they yeah. weren't elected. And then Jordan was able to yeah. do it. And I think he's a one who's taking a good, going to have a good sense of balance between his constituents and the city you know, as a whole. So, yeah, we'll see. We'll see. We've got it. That's for sure. It's not going to go away. Yeah, it's interesting when you have people sitting on the council who received 500 votes or something to get elected. And you look at these people over the years, some of them have run two, three, four times, thousands of votes, but it wasn't enough. To yeah. get, well, what to, was it? What was the most recent election? Three votes? Eight votes? Oh, yeah, on the east where, side. Where Jason votes. Dominguez lost by the hair? Yeah, lost by eight votes, which is like yeah. a piece of mail. 
you know. Or it's kind of about the same that Donald Trump won by, isn't it? <laughs> oh, man. So, uh, are there any projects that you look at today, something you designed a long time ago, and maybe you don't want to be specific, but you're like, you do things differently? Oh, or, no, I'll know? be specific. Uh, I have no, no problem <laughs> with that. Uh -huh. um, I did a, a, one of my early projects, it was probably 84 or 85, um, was Anacota Plaza, and that was at the corner of Anacapa Anna and Coda. And it's, I don't think it's any longer, now people think of it as Antioch. Yeah. Um, but um, I'm proud of it in that it was one of the early mixed-use projects, latter-day mixed-use. You know, back in the 20s and 30s, there was lots of mixed-use, but until the 80s, we really didn't see many. So I'm, I'm proud of it in that regard, but yeah, I'd do that, I'd do that building differently. Yeah. What, what, what <laughs> are the sure. issues there with that building? Um, I don't know. It's a little bit, uh, for lack of a better word, postmodern and, and lacking a little bit in detail. I mean... At, at the time, it's interesting, people don't realize this about that, but it has kind of a freestanding arcade along Anacapa. And I actually did that to emulate the arcade that was at the El Paseo. And at the time, the El Paseo arcade was covered with creeping fig. So we designed this arcade at, at the Antioch building to accept creeping fig and eventually just be this green wall. Yeah. Well. About the time it was being completed, the people at El Paseo were ripping the creeping fig off their building <laughs> that had done all kinds of damage. <laughs> and the building owner and my client said, we're not putting that on the building and planted like lantana instead, <laughs> which to this day still, you know, raises up about two feet and <laughs> it looks rather pathetic. You know, we're dealing with uh, the shelter in place and uh, this COVID-19, which is impacting businesses and everybody on every level. How are you, Brian Cornell? How has it impacted your daily life? How are you having to do things differently? Well, you know, it's interesting. I, you know, I don't know if you know, Josh, but I had bladder cancer. Um, I actually had my bladder removed six years ago oh, on April 21st. So that was my, so my, I have a, I have what's called a neobladder. They actually made a new bladder out of a section of my small intestine, hooked up the ureters and urethra and yeah, it, wow. it all works. So it's amazing. So say hallelujah. Um, so I was diagnosed two years before that. So i kind of went through this period where, you know, in fact, I joke, I took a sublatical <laughs> from the business. Um, and in the process, I built a little off-grid house up on a river in Oregon that I want to spend more and more time at. So, and, and I've been doing this for, you know, going on 37 years in business. So uh, I'm, I've got very capable partners, Christine Perrone and Jeff Hornbuckle, and we've got a great team here. And I've been kind of trying to phase a little bit out anyway. Mm -hmm. um, so I had my office set up in my home already, and I've always been, and because of spending time up in Oregon, I've been working remote. So it's, it's been pretty natural, you know? Um, and like I said, I, I, I'm feeling pretty optimistic about how things will be. I think it's a good thing. I, I'm, I'm hoping desperately that we have uh, change coming in November because we so desperately, not just as a community, but a, 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 you know, a national community need 
positive leadership and hope and, and, and reason to, you know, be optimistic about things. So, and if, if that doesn't happen, then I escape to Oregon, man, <laughs> to my off-grid house. I'm, I'm good. <laughs> I, I have, I'm, look, I'm, I'm going to believe that the vast majority of us are good people and, and know the right thing to do. And this is a, this is a nasty, crazy thing. I mean, what a, what an amazingly uh, smart little virus this is where it hides for a couple of weeks, right? You can't tell that you're infected and, and therefore it infects all kinds. I mean, it's, it's just a, it's a, it's an amazing phenomenon that I think we're going to learn a lot about and, and we're going to change forever, aren't we? I think the majority of us know that. I think the majority of us are, are so thirsty for decency. And I don't know what, what riles up those people. I don't know what motivates them. Ultimately, I think there's only, the only thing that works for me is there's three words, there's three reasons, and it may be different for different people. But the first is greed, the other is ignorance, and the third is fear. It's the only thing that explains that at those actions and the and the people that support this president. It's either of those things. You're either greedy and you want to keep whatever you got. You're completely ignorant and you've been you've been affected sadly by propaganda, or you're terrified that you're going to lose your job or you're going to whatever. Right? Somebody like Lindsey Graham. I think he'd fall under the fear category. Maybe. Certainly those poor people that work for the federal government, they're in the fear category. They don't dare say anything and they lose their job. Did you have a candidate in the Democratic primary that you were excited about? Uh, or are you just going to get behind uh, Biden? Or you know, I got to say, I was really excited about Cory Booker originally. Yeah. I really liked him. Yeah. Thought he was uh, just awesome. Um, so when he fell out, you know, I, I confess I voted for Elizabeth Warren in the California primary, and uh, Biden has n not been my pick. But you know what? I actually, uh, a couple of things about Biden. One, um, he's a good man, you know? He's definitely a good person. You just feel it, and you know, this whole sexual harassment allegation. I mean, that's just not who he is. I don't believe it, so. And that'll, that'll ride its course. But ultimately, it's this, this notion of the team arrivals. You know, if, if you read the Doris Kern Goodwin book about Lincoln, how, you know, Lincoln was the dark horse. He was, like, not going to win the primary, I mean, the, the, the um, uh, Republican uh, primary at all. And, and he came through because the, the two main guys, Sewell and I can't remember who the other guy was, New York and Ohio just hated each other. And um, Lincoln somehow, you know, after several ballots, won the convention and was, he was nominated for the party. Biden has an opportunity to create that team of rivals, you know, to pick his cabinet now. And, you know, I've read articles in the New York Times that have espoused this. I felt this for a long time. Wouldn't it be wonderful if, you know, we heard about who was going to be the Secretary of State and what their ambitions were going to be relative to and, and And we started having that dialogue. This is what the Defense Department is going to do. This is what we're going to do in health and human services. This is what we're going to do, you know, over here in housing. And, you know, so much can be positively talked about right now. If he does that now instead of waiting, I think it's going to make his candidacy much more valid because ultimately it's not about him. It's about who the government is. Yeah.
What do you think of Gavin Newsom? I know he's handled this. I whole think thing. he's been awesome. I really do. I, I, you know, he's a he's a formidable politician. There's no question about it. But but I think there's a real sincerity. I mean, he's he's made he's really made an effort to say, look, this isn't about politics, you guys. You know, we're, we we got to do the right thing here. And um, he's been out out there up front, open. Yeah, no complaints. So, Brian, you know, we started talking about the downtown housing project. Where do you want to see Santa Barbara go in the next five years? How, how quickly do you want to see things change? How quickly can they change? What should Santa Barbara look like when we're sitting here five years from now, when we look at the downtown? You know, on the one hand, I don't think it should look very different than, than what it does now. But we're, we're filling in the holes. And in the process of filling in the holes that we've got, and we do, we have a lot of parking lots, right, all around. And we have a lot of little one-story buildings that are underutilized. So I see it, it filling in and maturing in a really beautiful way that creates an urban place that is, is vital and, and a place you want to be, you know, that we connect the waterfront with State Street and that we have districts, you know, there's the funk zone and then what's the next district after that? And then then you get, you know, you get up to the theater district eventually. I guess I'm here in the bar district, (laughs) the 500 block, but um, that's what I see. And is it, it, does it happen quickly? No, it can't. It's it's something that it, it, there needs to be a plan, there needs to be a vision and it needs to evolve over over time and and ultimately i've always been a believer in this the mat you know this magical place we live in the south coast which is you know gaviota to rincon and it's this this miraculous little piece of south facing coastline you know we always think when we're looking out at the ocean we're looking towards hawaii we're not we're looking at, down towards mexico yeah and 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 the the things that can continue to evolve in that little region, you know, which really is, from a practical standpoint, it's IV, Goleta, Western Goleta, you know, down to Carpinteria. We have this opportunity for this, you know, spine of circulation that can be very efficient. There's no reason why we don't have robust train traffic just connecting the South Coast, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that each that we create these little hubs of sustainable communities, Goleta IV, you know, Santa Barbara, Montecito, Goleta, whatever. And we tend the environment in every, everything we do. We make it as sustainable as we can make it, every little choice we make, such that we become a model for places all over the world that work economically, work socially, work environmentally. Yeah, we could do that. Well, thanks, Brian. I really appreciate the conversation. You're so knowledgeable. Thank you, You're Josh. one of these people in Santa Barbara that is really making the community better. And uh, every time you're out there doing your projects, you can always tell you really believe in the architecture and you believe in what you're doing. And so for, as a journalist, it's really cool to watch you at all these meetings over the years and see you do what you do. And uh, we'll see how this uh, housing project turns out but i know a lot of people are super excited about it you can find more podcasts like these at www.santabarbaratalks.com and thanks to akiva co-work and thanks for listening